Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week is Tory Slee's back. Then after a discussion with the Chancellor, who everybody seems to be lobbying these days, the Prime Minister texted his friend to say it's fixed. Will Boris Johnson really say football? These clubs are not just great global brands. Of course they're great uh, global brands. They're also uh, clubs that have originated historically uh, from their towns, from their cities, from their local communities. They should have a link uh, with those fans. And how bad are things for Labour? A lot of my voters who I've met felt that Labour has lost its way uh, over the last uh, decade, uh, that nationally we were rubbish, that locally we fell into bad hands, and, and that together, you know, whether nationally or locally, you know, the town, Labour took the town for granted. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth is here. Hi Arj. Hi, Rachel. And we've got the Labour peer and former cabinet minister, Lord Peter Mandelson. Hi, Arj. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well. I'm sitting here in the Golden Lion pub in the north of the town in Hartlepool. It's a brilliant sunny day, fresh breeze coming off the North Sea. Uh, and it's great to be back in my in my old town. Fantastic. And you're, you are, of course, on the doorstep there for the crucial by-election coming up, which we'll get into later. But Good. first, but first... Because since we last recorded the podcast, Westminster has been engulfed in allegations of what Labour is calling Tory sleaze, the lobbying of senior ministers by their ex-colleagues, company bosses and foreign leaders has thrown into the spotlight the so-called revolving door between the public and private sectors. So far, David Cameron has perhaps suffered the most damage amid a string of embarrassing revelations about his lobbying for collapsed finance firm Greensill Capital. But now Boris Johnson's own dealings are being scrutinised following revelations of text exchanges with Saudi leader Mohammed bin Salman over a proposed takeover of Newcastle United and James Dyson over tax rules. Keir Starmer is trying very hard to make it all stick. Let's just have a listen to him. Mr Speaker, there's a pattern to this government. The Prime Minister is fixing tax breaks for his friends. The Chancellor is pushing the Treasury to help Lex Greensill. The health sector is meeting Greensill for drinks. And David Cameron's texting anybody who'll reply. <laughs> every day, every day, there are new allegations about this Conservative government. Uh, Paul, do you think this issue is getting cut through with the public? Labour thinks it is, or wants it to, at least. Um, well, there's only been one poll specifically on Cameron and Greensill so far, and that was a YouGov poll. And to my surprise, it showed 25% of people actually knew the detail of the story. Now, I think that's quite a large figure. Uh, I think more than half of people knew uh, uh, roughly uh, that the story was around. So obviously, he's having some cut through. Um, when I've talked to Keir Starmer's team, the most important thing from their point of view is whenever the story about cronyism, they've been building this 
picture over the last few months, rather methodically under Rachel Reeves and others, of a picture of um, you know mates, rates, and favours when it comes to things as basic as PPE in the pandemic. And that, when Keir Starmer trialled it first in PMQs just before Christmas in in, in November, um, when they went to their focus groups, they found an instant reaction that there was cut through to that story. So people are happy to go along with the government, cut them a bit of slack on the pandemic itself. But if, if there's any hint whatsoever of cronyism and people making money out of, of public money off the off the back of the pandemic, profiteering in a sense, um, in a political way, then the public really don't like it. Yeah, Peter, your old boss, Tony Blair, said he was finding it difficult to get too worked up about text between Boris Johnson and James Dyson. Do you agree with him? Um, I, I think I'm a bit more concerned than that. I, I didn't hear what he had to say, but I, I just don't think that tax breaks for people, whether it be James Dyson or anyone else, should be negotiated by the Prime Minister personally. Um, you know, especially when he's clearly on such friendly terms with them, and certainly not through casual exchanges by WhatsApp. I mean, we, we, we live in a properly governed country and democracy. We don't live in a private members club. Um, we live in a country where everyone's rights and treatment are equal before the law. And I think that's how people expect the country to be governed. And I think they'll be rather uh, surprised that you have a prime minister able to conduct this sort of business by WhatsApp with people he's clearly uh, very close to. Yeah, it's interesting because New Labour was sort of accused of running a, a sofa-style government with quite informal decision making. Is yeah, but it had nothing to do had nothing to do with this, Arch. That was about yeah. prime ministers seeing ministers and civil servants in a relaxed setting. That was actually got up out of nothing. Who cares about the furniture of a room? You know, he had as many meetings around the cabinet table as he did on a sofa. But that's got that's a million miles away from running the government like a private members club, which is what we're seeing now. And isn't it true, Peter, that Tony Blair didn't even have a mobile phone when he was prime minister? Is that right? <laughs> well, he was sometimes given one. I remember speaking to him on a mobile phone. But I mean, no, usually he would make phone calls. Uh, uh, the switchboard at number 10. Uh, would 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 put three people through or get calls for him, but if he was speaking to somebody like this, he would have an official on the line. There's no yeah. doubt at all about it. He wouldn't dream of conducting uh, government business in this way. I mean, he's I don't know what he said yesterday, but I think he was being he was being a tad kind. Look, the truth is um, that <laughs> the government's just be it's just been in power for too long, isn't it? I mean, they've forgotten what standards are, and if they haven't forgotten them, they certainly don't think they apply to them anymore. Um, and it's what happens when a party's been in power for as long as they have, uh, without, for a lot of the time, I have to say, an effective opposition uh, for a lot of it. Uh, so, uh, I mean, he may not think that the rules apply uh, to him, uh, Boris Johnson, but, you know, I think they're going to they're gonna catch up with him. Uh, he's going to find out what the rules are. Uh, and he's going to be reminded what standards and integrity in government uh, means to people. And he'll be reminded in the ballot box. If not now, then he will be later. 
yeah. do you think do you think peter actually the, the interesting thing about this is is this whatsapp style sense of government stems in a way from david cameron's time where apparently he used to text people all the all the time on his mobile phone partly to get around the fact that they're in a coalition he didn't want to share messages with his lib dem colleagues um is, is that well, that, some, well that's, something that's politics it? no that's politics paul yeah you know, he's entitled to go around the back of his uh um, a coalition colleague, uh, if he wants. What he's not allowed to do is to go round the back of his own officials. That's outside the ministerial code. That's not how we do things in this country. That's not how we conduct business. He knows it, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, I think this is a real wake-up call, uh, quite honestly. And I, I, I suspect that the cabinet secretary uh, uh, will, will will be telling them that this is not what the public expect. This is not the standards by which uh, government operates in this country, and they've got to change. Yeah, Peter, I mean, what can we actually do about this? Because the Prime Minister is the ultimate arbiter of the ministerial code, isn't he? And in, in the modern era, is it is it perhaps inevitable that, you know, business is going to be done via text message? I mean, so much no, it, lies. No, it's, it's not inevitable. <laughs> no, it's not inevitable. It's only inevitable when you've got a, a party that you know thinks that you can operate government as if you're providing a special VIP service uh, lane for donors and cronies. If that's how you want government to operate, then fine, do it by WhatsApp. But that is not how we've done it in this country before, and it's not how we should be doing it in the future. And I can tell you something. I mean, whatever anyone says about Keir Starmer, um, uh, one thing is for sure, he wouldn't be a running a government. Uh, in this way. I mean, he's a guy with impeccable standards. He's been a director of public prosecutions. He knows how to do things properly. Uh, and he, he would organise his government and expect very, very much, very different standards from ministers uh, in any administration he's head of. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Yeah, uh, Rachel, I just wanted to um, ask you, why, why do you think Labour's going so hard at this? Is it because it worked in the 90s and Peter kind of gave an impression that, you know, you know, he said it's a sign of a tired Tory government that's been in power too long, which was very much the argument in the uh, 90s before Blair came to power. Um, I, I think it's really fertile ground for, for the Labour Party because of that. Yeah. And um, I, I think when you look um I think Labour would probably point to some of some of the accusations the government has faced of this pork barrel politics as well, and just the overall feeling of whether or not the government is being fair with thing, with things like the the towns fund, for example. Um, the 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 last tranche of funding was like um, when you look at the sort of the forty five different towns that were sharing some of this some of this one billion pound shared prosperity fund. Um, 40 of the 40 of the 45 towns chosen had at least one conservative mp so i think it raises um it, it's helpful to labor party in that it, it can raise further questions about how the how this government is conducting um government altogether and i think um just for, for labor as well it's 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 the kind of criticism and the kind of the kind of area for the party that can unite all wings of the party so i think it's very very helpful for them at the moment in that sort of it gets a lot of the, those people their their activists out on the doorstep because it's something they can really get behind yeah really interesting and peter it's worth asking you know how how shocked if not shocked at all were you in pmqs to hear yourself name checked that you've still got that um pulling power well, um when uh, boris johnson accused you of being a lobbyist the other week 
you know, I'm not actually a lobbyist, but it doesn't matter. He's always been a stranger to the truth, is Boris. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, 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 one thing you wouldn't expect Boris to do uh, is to be anything other than completely economical in his approach to the truth, would you? And if you had a problem with standards and integrity in government, he's not the man you'd turn to, to put it right, is he? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I've been on, on the doorstep uh, this morning uh, talking to my former uh, voters. What struck me about a whole number of comments they made was that they didn't expect anything better. <laughs> I mean, yeah. one, one guy said, you know, Johnson will say he'll do anything that pleases him. He's not serious, is he? Another guy said, you know, my house needs decorating. You know, can you get one of Boris's mates to give me a bunch of money to do my house up? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's partly, you know, flippant. Uh, it's partly making a joke of it. Uh, but it also reflects something else, which is that they don't actually have very high expectations of Boris. And to be honest, they don't have very high expectations of, of politicians as a whole. And I think that reflects a poor state of politics in our country. Yeah, does that make it hard for Labour to make this stick or, or to make it have an electoral impact? I don't think it makes it hard for it to stick because it speaks for itself. I don't think they have to make it stick because it's sticking whatever they say or do. But one thing is clear to me is that Tory Sleaze is not going to win the next election for Labour. I mean, it will loosen and crumble a lot of support for the Tories and people will reach the conclusion uh, that they're out for themselves and they suit themselves uh, and they fill the pockets of their own cronies and supporters. That's true. But that doesn't mean to say that Labour's just, you know, got to sit back and wait for the election to fall into their laps. That's not how, how you win elections. So fine. Uh, make the point, but you've got to present uh, a credible and attractive alternative if you want people to vote for you. So Labour is climbing back from quite a drop uh, that we climbed into and made for ourselves, uh, both here locally uh, and nationally. And it takes time to rebuild trust. It takes time to win back that confidence. And I'm hearing that on the doorstep here. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that in a bit more detail later. But first, after weeks of the lobbying scandal dominating the news, it would have needed to be a seismic story to knock it off the front pages. And it was perhaps predictable that this would come from the world of elite football as the so-called big six English clubs threatened to join a breakaway European Super League that would have killed competition as we know it in the sport. Boris Johnson wasted no time in making clear his opposition, threatening a legislative bomb to halt the plans. And as rival fans and political parties united in disgust at the club's greed, the so-called Super League collapsed in disgrace just 72 hours after emerging in the news. Many fans will hope this is a watershed moment for change in an increasingly money-dominated sport. Let's hear Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden on that. Yes, I think it's really important that we don't just say, well, this is all over with, forget about it. Uh, I announced on Monday that Tracy Crouch would be leading this fan-led review. That will essentially look at finance, it will look at governance, and it will look at the fan experience of, of football. Because my whole experience as Secretary of State, both dealing with this and dealing with the challenges we had with, with football and financing it, during the, the COVID crisis. I think there is a real need to look at this properly now. Uh, Paul, the government went all out on this full-scale intervention, at least they threatened a full-scale intervention, and it surprised some on the right of the Tory party. What do you think it kind of means for politics in a general sense, how the Tories have handled this? Well, I think it tells you a couple of things. One is that the public um, 
actually quite like state intervention of some kinds, whether it's furlough or whether it's something like this, the threat of state intervention. Normally football fans will run a mile from any, any politician trying to politicise their, their sport. But this was so big, so huge, you saw so effectively a, a counter-revolution almost. Um, but the second point is that, that actually um, it shows what a good politician Boris Johnson is, I'm afraid, uh, which is that... Um, you know, he saw that public mood and he acted on it. And he said, roughly, um, this, this, to be frank, I think the sort of things that maybe even Tony Blair would have said, um, uh, which is, look, you've got prime minister in power. He sees this popular upswelling of opinion, uh, real emotion, um, and felt actually, the, what role can I play? Well, it's ultimately down to the clubs to sort it out, but I will give them the authorities my support. And if they don't get what they want, then I've got this legislative stick or bomb to plant. And I thought that was quite effective. Now, Johnson obviously tried to do a bit of a victory lap about it yesterday. It'd be interesting to see whether or not he gets any credit from, from the voters of all the football fans, who, as I say, are deeply cynical, ultimately, about most politicians. So maybe that might not pay off. But it, apparently from Tory MPs are saying that it has paid off in some sense that they're picking up that that you know he's on their side um and he showed it uh, even though crucially he didn't pretend to be a fo football fan either and so i paul, think you know paul, that, paul, that might you, make paul, a difference paul don't you think this is a whole load of hypocrisy this is the guy the prime minister putting himself on the side uh, of, of football fans and supporters how many months ago was he exchanging uh, whatsapp messages with the Saudi crown prince, the strong man who rules uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and saying, if I can give you any help to deliver Newcastle United into your hands, just let me know. Yeah. Th those, were, those were WhatsApp messages that, that came into the media, what, you know, uh, the, uh, the other week. So there he is on the one hand saying, oh, I'm on the side of the supporters, the fans, I'm on the side of the game. This shouldn't be run like an elite business. But just cast your mind back to his WhatsApp messages when he was trying to do exactly that, yeah, deliver right. another ma another major uh, British club into the hands of a foreign investor. Yeah, but isn't that the challenge, Peter? That actually he is a chameleon. He does say one thing six months ago, and then he changes, and he gets. <laughs> well, away that's with all right it. then. No, but isn't <laughs> well, that the well, he get, that, No, he he, get, he gets away with it whilst there's no credible alternative who people can can turn to. And the truth is that increasingly people are seeing Labour as a credible alternative. They do see Keir Starmer as a man of principles and of, uh, and of in integrity, but they want to know a lot more about him and what he believes in and what the policies of the Labour Party will be at the next election before they're prepared to transfer their allegiance to him and to the Labour Party. And that's why the Labour Party's got work on its hands. That's why we've got a mountain to climb. And we've got to do it. And we've got to do it um, in my view, uh, with greater intensity and more speed and more focus than we've been doing at any time uh, during the last year. But what's been happening in the last year, we've had a COVID crisis, we've had a pandemic. In a sense, it sort of made Labour and its leaders sort of almost hermetically sealed away uh, from normal day-to-day -day politics because they've been, uh, everyone's been focused on the pandemic. Fine, well, we're coming out of that now, uh, thank goodness. And now the Labour Party has got to turn back to the job it has on its hands, uh, which is to restore confidence and, uh, and credibility in it so that people feel they have a really strong alternative to turn to. And that, in my view, they will do as long as Labour Party earns that support. 
Yeah, Peter, I just wanted to ask you about the, the, the power of using sport for political advantage. Tony Blair and New Labour understood it, um, but and Boris Johnson appears to be understanding it now, but do you think it could backfire? Is it a risky approach, particularly if, for example, the government's fans-led review of football, for example, doesn't go far enough? Does he need to back it up with action, or is this kind of... Of course he does, like everything yeah. else. He's very good. Uh you know, with the soundbite, and he speaks off the top of his head, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll deliver this, I'll give you the other. Uh, all too often, it's not followed up. And I think uh, football fans will remember what he said, and he'll expect they'll expect the government to deliver. Look, I'm not a football man myself, but I know a little bit about politics and communications. And I certainly know <laughs> that the elite investors and owners of these clubs are a world away from the public whose support they rely on you know, in the game itself, um, a world away, completely disconnected. So Boris Johnson, he could see that straight away and he knew which side he had to put himself on. But now he's got to deliver. Yet again, he's made promises off the top of his head. I remember him standing outside Downing Street and saying, oh, we've got this great, great plan for social care for the elderly. It's been ignored for too long. Well, I've got a plan and we're going to implement it. You know, what, what are we, two years on? No sign of any plan whatsoever. Why? Because it never existed in the first place. What existed was a soundbite. What existed was something that he knew people wanted to hear. What he didn't have was a set of policies to carry out and, 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 and be, true to, to be true to what he was promising. And he does this time and time again. And the truth catches up with you. If not yeah. this, it will be something else. And he'll find by the time of the next election, people will be judging him, not by his words, but by his performance and what he's delivered. Yeah, interesting. Rachel, do, do you think this will be a watershed moment for football? Do you think Johnson's really prepared to intervene at the level that might be required? Peter obviously thinks not. Um, well, when I was up in I was up in Darlington yesterday and speaking to, to football fans and they were just outraged and it was it was one of it was the main subject that people wanted to talk about they were just outraged at the, the at the at the super league generally at the fact that you could get into this league and not be relegated the the lack of fairness just you know after years of being treated with contempt by the owners of football clubs um i would just say separately as a newcastle fan um i was kind of sat here nodding um everything peter said about um uh, ben salman and, and boris johnson um but i think I think the, the big risk for, for the Prime Minister in this is, is the, the disappointment that he could risk by raising hopes so far that, that the government can make such big changes in football. You know, the, these, are, these are fans that kind of have thought through every possible option that could come out of a fan's review. Um, and they're, 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 some of them are realistic and some of them, some of them aren't. And I just think if, if, the, if the reforms don't really deliver for fans, I think... If, they, if their hopes are really, really high, they're going to be very, very disappointed. Yeah. But Rachel, these reforms and the way they run football in Germany is very, very different, isn't it? Yeah. So you've got you've got a workable model in Germany. Why can't we have that here? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I, I think there'll be some there'll be some clubs that will want that and others that won't if they feel like it risks them not being able to bring in the big players. You know, it's kind of it's going to be it's it's it's, it's a difficult issue for a government to try and tackle at all I think um, and football fans expectations are, are going to be very very high.
Yeah, it's going to be interesting as well, because I think I believe, Rachel, the Saudis are coming back in for Newcastle at the moment or, or will be soon. It's good. Do, does that, do people think Boris Johnson will have to then comment on that and take a position on that? I don't know, Paul. He's, already, he's already taken a position on it, Arch. Just read his WhatsApp. He's taken a position. I do everything I can for you. It's yours. Yours for the asking. Here it is on a plate. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, despite the lobbying scandal and Labour allegations of cronyism during the pandemic, things seem to be getting better in the polls for Boris Johnson. The latest YouGov poll gave the Tories a whopping 14-point lead on Labour nationally, and it sets up a worrying couple of weeks for Keir Starmer in the run-up to May's local elections, and in particular the by-election in Peter's old seat of Hartlepool, as we've been discussing. Let's just listen to the Tory candidate for the seat, though, Jill Mortimer, on a bit of a sticky wicket when asked if she would nationalise Liberty Steel, which employs hundreds in Hartlepool and is under threat following the collapse of Greensill Capital. Let's have a listen. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to go. To be completely honest with you, I don't know enough about it to give you a full comment on that at the moment. You don't know enough about Liberty Steel? There were 250 oh, people I know enough about in, Liberty in Steel, but not about whether we should nationalise it. I, I'm not a great nationaliser of industries. I think they're much better. They, they are more streamlined and perform better in private ownership. But if that's what it took to save 250 jobs here in Hartlepool? I'd have to see more evidence to come to a proper conclusion. Uh, Paul, we had uh, the Tory polling expert Lord Hayward on the podcast just before Easter, and he was massively downplaying the chances of his party winning in Hartlepool. Do you think he might be feeling a bit more optimistic now? Well, I'll preface everything I say by deferring to Peter's extensive knowledge of this subject for obvious reasons. But I mean, my feeling was, and I've felt this all along, that you know, Labour shouldn't really be even in the territory of thinking it can lose Hartlepool. If, you, if you're not going to lose Hartlepool um, in, at the height of unpopularity of, of Jeremy Corbyn in 2019, at the height of Brexit as a huge issue, and you still win by nearly 4,000 votes, then you know, I, it, I, to me, if, if they do lose it, there's something very, very seriously wrong. Um, and it, you can't blame that on the pandemic. There's got to be something a bit more systemic there that maybe Labour's going to have to look at, whether it's Keir Starmer, as Peter says, being much more proactive about saying what he stands for. Um, there's got to be, you can't f trade on this excuse for very long, much longer now, the idea that in a pandemic, you know, the government gets all the attention. That That's becoming rather the reason a, a, a lame excuse if, if that does materialise. I'm not saying it will, but I think that, I don't know. I think the, the curious thing is is going to be just where that old Brexit vote goes um, and whether or not in 2019, you know, that was split evenly between Tories and Labour and also all those people who sat at home and just sat out the by-election because they were unhappy with Corbyn. Uh, if they, if Labour gets even a chunk of those people back, surely Labour should be increasing its majority. I don't know what Peter thinks. I mean, do you think uh, I mean, a win is a win, Peter? One vote, majority is just as good as 10,000? Look, all I uh, know is that Labour's in a real fight in Hartlepool. Uh, it may or may not surprise you, but in 2019, uh, the combined Tory and Brexit party uh, vote uh, completely outgunned Labour. Uh, we got a 37% only share of the vote. It was the fourth lowest of any Labour-held seat in the country. Uh, and we're fighting uh, against a headwind uh, now, not, not just of what's gone wrong with for Labour in, in the past, uh, both nationally and locally here in Hartlepool, Brexit and 
uh, and, and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, but we're also now fighting against a headwind, which is cr being created by the uh, by the vaccines reprieve, uh, which has given a bounce uh, to the Tories. There's no doubt at all about that. Um, I found even this morning the memory of Jeremy Corbyn is still strong on the doorsteps amongst Labour voters here. It's still coming up. And I'm afraid we've got some way to go before we rebuild the confidence and trust that was taken, uh, that we just threw away uh, uh, during the last five or, or so years. So we've got a great team here. We've got a very strong message, in my view, an excellent candidate uh, in Paul Williams. He's going down well on the doorstep. But as I say, we're fighting Tories who've been boosted in recent uh, years. Uh, and we've got that uh, vaccine bounce to take on uh, uh, currently. So nobody can take this seat for granted, not Labour nor the Tories. And would you be happy with a, a majority of just one? I'd like a majority, which is a darn sight larger than one. Thank you very much. And that's why I've been, <laughs> why I'm on my third visit and working very hard. Uh, and reminding people, by the way, uh, of what a Labour government did for this town when we were in power. We rebuilt the schools, we rebuilt our hospital. You know, we put in new NHS healthcare infrastructure uh, in the town. What have we had since uh, over the last uh, 10 years? You know, we, we've had the hospital run down. We've had the magistrate's court closed in Hartlepool. We've got the police custody cells taken out of Hartlepool uh, and put uh, elsewhere. We've had a lot of the civic infrastructure and fabric of this town taken out of Hartlepool by the uh, uh, austerity years under the Tories. And people feel this very strongly. But at the same time, and I'm going to be honest with you about this, they do feel let down by Labour. And it's, it's that trust that we've got to rebuild. We've got to earn it afresh. Now, uh, we've had a year of doing that uh, under Keir Starmer, uh, but it's going to take longer uh, to do the job uh, completely. And that's why, as I say, we're fighting, uh, we've got a real fight on our hands here, and we're swimming against quite strong headwinds. Uh, but we are fighting very hard, as I say. The, the, the campaign and the candidate are good here, but if we lose it, and on balance I think we're going to win, but if we lose it, it will be because of national factors and past factors affecting Labour in the town, uh, not by the state of the Labour Party now. Rachel, you're up there, or you've been up there um, in recent days and weeks. What's your sense of how it's going on the ground? Um, I, I think I think um, that Peter's right. It is it is it is very very tough for Labour. I think one thing that people who are not from the northeast don't realise is that even though we've had a Conservative government for you know more than ten years, it's Labour is the establishment in the northeast. So throughout the austerity years, the most seats have had a Labour MP and a Labour council, and it it feels to a lot of local people that everything is run by by Labour. Um, and I would I would also say that yeah, there's the the vaccine bounce, but there's also um, the Ben Houchin bounce, which um, is is a really big deal. You know, a lot of people in in sort of the south of Durham and Teesside, you know, I look to the Conservative Party mayor for the Tees Valley, Ben Houchin, as having brought in lots and lots of investment. And even though you would sort of break down some of some of that and um, argue that it hasn't created a, a very many jobs just yet, there's just an awful lot of positivity around everything that he's he's done since he he won the seat. And he's he seems on course to to win again um, in, in just a few weeks time and win quite handsomely. 
and he's quite he's quite a big deal on Teesside, this guy, the, the Tory mayor. Rachel, Rachel, I don't disagree with you mm-hmm. uh, uh, about Ben Houchen, um, but his his fame and delivery does not yet reach Hartlepool. I mean, he's very much round Tees Valley, Tees Estuary, Teesside but, Airport. Uh, he's not yet Hartlepool, and he talks. But isn't one of the he, isn't one of the problems he talks, that you... he talks a big game about his uh, about his Freeport, but the Freeport stretches to Hartlepool only by only in name, and that Freeport and all the tax perks and advantages that come with businesses locating in it. Uh, require a lot of investment in infrastructure, new making up land and buildings for businesses. That has yet to come anywhere near Hartlepool. At the moment, uh, it's around the it's around the T's and around the airport. It's not around uh, uh, us in here in this town. So I I, I, I take your point. Uh, he he's been a, apparently quite a successful mayor in the sense that he's got a good name for himself. But what he's actually done and delivered has yet to reach this town. But isn't isn't one isn't one of the problems that you have is that sort of voters in Hartlepool are looking and seeing that it is that everything that that Ben seems to have been working on is 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 on areas that are now Tory held, and they're thinking, oh, if I could vote Conservative, maybe things would change for Hartlepool. Is that is that one of the problems that you have? I had a voter this morning who said, you know what the Tories are like. Uh, they just get their snouts in the trough. Uh, well, perhaps it's our turn. Perhaps it. Perhaps we. Perhaps we should get our our noses in the our snouts in the trough as well, uh, because what they see uh, is quite a lot of pork barrel politics being thrown around the place. Now, will that be enough uh, to give a deliver a Tory majority in this town? I don't think so. Is it a factor? Uh, yes, and it's something the Tories are playing up for all it's worth uh, during this campaign. I acknowledge that. That's what they're, that's what they're saying. That's what they're trying to get people to believe and and, and to vote for. Uh, but you know what you've got offsetting that is a very good Labour candidate who people like, a doctor who's been working in the COVID care clinic in the General Hospital here in Hartlepool for the last uh, year, who provides a strong voice for the town and a pair of very sharp elbows you'll really fight for the town and that's what people like as well so there are votes up uh, uh not yet decided uh and i know what the tories are saying but on the other side of the ledger you've got a very strong labor candidate and campaign one thing that one thing i did observe while i was up there is ben houchin the mayor doesn't really seem to be campaigning that hard for jill mortimer the conservative candidate for Hartlepool. i don't i don't think ben houchin's come to the town I'm not actually sure whether the Tory candidate herself has come to the town very much. Uh, she was first interviewed and she was asked what she knew about Hartlepool. She said, absolutely nothing, but I hope to learn. Well, she hasn't gained much knowledge uh, through very many visits here. Now, they tend to, there's very little Tory presence in the town. There's nothing on the streets. They do it by social media, you know, uh, uh, email, um, uh, uh, there's uh, the, 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 they haven't got Tory workers and activists uh, on the streets here in the way that Labour has. Peter, I just wanted to broaden the the, the kind of um, debate about what Labour needs to do out a little bit. Um, one thing that Keir Starmer has been, or Labour have been criticised for in, in recent weeks has been the fact that the shadow cabinet, no, no one knows who they are. You, you were in, you know, cabinets of a lot of big hitters in politics. Do you think Keir Starmer needs to freshen things up there? Well, 
he'll know what to do when the time uh, comes. And I'm not going to start giving him advice or lectures about how he should do his job. All I know uh, is this, that people want Labour to make the weather. You know, it, it's not just, you know, sounding and looking like, you know, the right thing in the right place at the right time and you're responding to this and you're finding the way, right way to react to that. They want, they want Labour to make the news. They want the Tories properly taken apart. If you're a Labour person or if you're not, if you're anti-Tory and you want to see a proper attack being mounted uh, on the Tory party, uh, you'll expect it from Labour and Labour's got to deliver that. If it falls short, if it's a bit weak, if it's a bit flabby, if it appears not to know how to use the media uh, well, you know, if it's not doing its opposition uh, research well and honing its attacks and creating the ammunition with people strong uh, enough to fire that ammunition in the Tory direction, then people are going to say, well, are Labour strong enough? So you have got to, in politics, we live in a very advers adversarial business in politics. And people judge you and your strength and your effectiveness uh, by what you say and how you take on your opponents, the arguments that you can form and deploy. Uh, and then, of course, most importantly, the alternatives that you're offering. Uh, and what people want to see in the Labour Party is a party that can and will take on the Tories effectively uh, and play them at their own game. They also want a party that's modern, that's fair, and that provides strong leadership. That's how they'll make up their minds at the end of the day, and that's how Labour is going to win uh, the next election. People want to, they look to the Labour Party to create a dynamic economy in this country. They want and expect social justice and policies uh, for that from the Labour Party. They also expect the Labour Party to understand what aspiration means, that people want to do better for themselves and their families, and they want everyone else to operate on the basis of fair rules when it comes to immigration or crime uh, or welfare they want fair rules applied to everyone now that's what they expect from and the reason why they will vote for the labor party but the labor party's got to come across much more strongly it's got plenty of time to do so between now and the next election uh, but they've got to put in place a much more effective uh, electoral political fighting machine in order to make that impact uh, across the country, not just in the in the cities where Labour's doing well, not just amongst the higher educated, where Labour's also getting support, ethnic minorities, where we're also drawing a lot of support. We've got to widen that basis of support to the towns, not just the cities, uh, and, and the towns in the Midlands and the North, and not just the university towns. So again, where we've got plenty uh, of support. We've got to get back onto the cultural, political, social wavelength of an awful lot of people from whom we've become completely disconnected, not just over the last five years, but actually to a certain extent over the last 10 years uh, as well. We've got a lot of ground to make up and we're not gonna do that unless we recreate that cultural connection that we lost during those years uh, from so many people who were taken for granted that they were Labour supporters, but then saw a Labour party, which when they listened to it and saw it, they didn't quite recognise. And that's what we've got to repair. Peter, can I ask you just on a totally lighter note, completely different note? I mean, we've got you on. A am, I being too, am I being too serious for you? I'm so sorry. 
no, I was going to say, I can't have you on this politics podcast. Is a, politics is a serious business, you know. <laughs> I get that. Um, and, I and, I want my, and I want my party to win. I'm fed up with losing. I'm fed to the back teeth with losing. I want to yeah. see my party winning again. And that's, that's why I'm here and that's why I work for it. Anyway, what did you want to ask? I was going to say, do you think enough of your colleagues share that sense of being fed up of opposition? And sometimes it's just been too easy. They, they, they seem to like being in opposition almost. You don't win elections by going through the motions. Yeah. You don't, you don't win elections, you know, by saying, you know, nice things about yourself. You've got to go for your, you've got to go for your opponents as well. Turn them inside out strip them down, lay them bare and see what uh, see what they stand for and what, what, what they're not doing for this country. And then people will look to you. And when they do look to you, you better have a credible, affordable, radical set of modern policies for people to vote for. And that's what Labour's got to create over the next uh, year or so. Well, what I was going to raise was the lovely issue of guacamole and mushy peas. Given that oh, you're, were you? the were reason you really? I was going to raise this was because <laughs> you are the person who actually put it out there originally in your original Sunday People column, as we all know. I was just going to ask you, you this story, obviously, it's a myth and it stemmed from an American Labour Party worker in Knowsley. And it's nothing to do with Hartlepool, nothing to do with you. But you, you wrote about it in the People because it was in the Hartlepool Mail. Is that right? Do you know what I had last night here in the town for my dinner? <laughs> guacamole. Hartlepool cod and mushy peas. No guacamole to be seen. No, I did write about it because it became a joke. When I left the Labour Party as its, as its campaign director in 1991 or whatever it was, Neil Kinnock gave a little party uh, uh, for the whole of the uh, media, the parliament, the lobby of journalists in Westminster. And at my farewell party, he brought in uh, a wonderful uh, haddock, I think it was, and mushy peas, wrapped up in a copy of that day's Daily Mirror and presented it to me to remind everyone of the joke that was first said about that American intern in the Nosley by-election in 1986. And forever <laughs> since, it's attached itself to me. And do, <laughs> I, and do I mind? And do I mind? No, I don't. I love, <laughs> but, I, as you know, I love laughing at myself. But Peter, <laughs> which, which do you prefer, mushy peas or guacamole? Actually, do you want to know, Arj? Yes. I, I love the mushy peas last night. They <laughs> were brilliant. Uh, so I'm now a fully reconverted mushy pea man, especially <laughs> especially when they're served up with a battered Hartlepool cod. Fantastic. <laughs> OK, it's time for the quiz and it's on uh, my favourite topic again, politics and football. Uh, so the first question, just shout the answer if you know it. The fans of which team sing Labour anthem, the red flag during games? No idea. Corbynistas United. <laughs> I'm, I'd be surprised if no one gets this, given the... Uh, Liverpool? Liverpool? No, 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 no. Oh, really? Um, no idea. Oh, it's Sunderland. Oh, oh God, yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great uh, bunch. Great question, bunch. Oh, shush. <laughs> question, question number two. Argentine football legend Diego Maradona once said his hand of, goal, hand of God goal was revenge for what? Oh, the Fortlands. Well done, Paul. Point for you. And the final question... 
Gordon Brown once played table tennis quite badly, I should add, with which football manager? Oh, oh, blimey. I don't know. Um... Kirkcaldy Wanderers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um... Um... Oh, who could that be? Um, Rossyth United. What's the, I don't know who is it. I I I use I I remember once uh, throwing tennis balls over a net uh, to Gordon Brown so that he could whack them back across the net for a Daily Mirror photo shoot. I remember once. <laughs> no, nobody was playing tennis with him on the other side of the net. I was just <laughs> throwing the balls, and he still hit it really hard. Very hard. I had to dodge <laughs> all over the shop. They were very. It was a very very good photo shoot. I remember. <laughs> that, that, that great clunking fist, perhaps. No, the manager was uh, Harry Redknapp. Oh, I didn't know that. And in charge there of Spurs. Uh, there we go. Uh, Paul, you've won the quiz 1-0-0. Well done. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with the Labour MP Lillian Greenwood inadvertently paying tribute to the now sadly departed dance music legends Daft Punk. Let's go to Lillian Greenwood. Lillian. I just have to pass on. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.